This is Glenn Crooks on frame. In the first international competition in club history, New York City FC defeated A.D. San Carlos in the opening leg of the CONCACAF Champions League round of 16. Led by Ebers Hattrick, the first three-goal performance by an MLS player in the history of the event, City defeated Toros del Notre 5-3 in Costa Rica. So that's five road goals as they head back home for the second leg on Wednesday, February the 26th at Red Bull Arena, the former home of our special guest today who's going to help us analyze the City performance. Okay, let's uh, bring in a guy who's a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame, part of three World Cups, uh, one of the best goalkeepers in the history of our country internationally, and even 100 caps for the U.S. domestically. Played for 11 years as one of the original MLS guys, drafted by the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. He was league MVP in 2000, leading the Kansas City Wizards to the MLS title. And now he's providing regular television commentary. You hear him in a lot of different places. He was one of the lead analysts for Fox at the 2018 World Cup. Uh, and he provided analysis for FS2 on New York City FC's 5-3 win over San Carlos in the first leg of the CONCACAF Champions League round of 16. And you can also hear him a weekday afternoons as a co-host of SiriusXMFC's Counterattack. He's Tony Miola. Tony, what's happening? How are you? Glenn, how are you, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. And I, I do want to get to a few things before we talk about New York City, the game, and uh, CONCACAF, and this Champions League, and what it means, and how difficult it is for these MLS teams. But MLS is celebrating its 25th season, so I would imagine as one of the original guys, you must have a certain amount of pride uh, having been there from the start. Yeah, no doubt. It, I can tell you it doesn't seem like 25 years ago, but I, I suppose they, they've been counting, so it must be right. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> if you think about where the league's come since uh, 1996, it has grown leaps and bounds uh, in, in just about every area of the game. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing we've seen uh, you know, as far as stadiums, I can remember back in the day where it was such a big concern where everybody was going to play. That's that's now within the league is less of a concern. And I know, uh, you know, we still have our issues and we still have our um, our sort of obstacles as as uh, supporters of the league to get over. But um, it, it has grown in a way that I, I think if you would have painted this picture 25 years ago, no one would have believed you. If you would have said 25 years from now, this is what it's going to look like. And no, no one would have thought that it would have grown this quickly. So, yeah, it's it's fun to see watch. We still have a long way to go, um, but there's there's no doubt that it's getting better and better each year. And what did you think? Uh, uh, collective bargaining, uh, new agreement. Uh, have you talked to any of the players and uh, considering where they were five years ago and where they are now? It, it seems like they'd be pretty happy with this new deal. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, five years ago, coming out of this thing, I, I think they all realized that, uh, ha that that had they fought maybe a little bit more, been a little bit more um, willing to to say no to some things and push the envelope, they may have gotten some, you know, some more. But they realized that over the last five years, and um, they were a pretty tight group. Yeah, we had the opportunity, and we've spoken to a couple guys on our counterattack show. We've spoken to some guys privately. We were out the MLS media days and got to speak to players kind of off the record about where they thought it was going. 
Um, and, and I suppose in all of these things, you know, both sides want to feel like they won something, you know, and, and uh, that, that seems to be sort of a negotiating staple. You want to feel like you've won something. And five years ago, I think uh, the owners clearly won that deal. And I think this time around, both sides would be happy with the, the current deal. And, and now we can get ready for the, the season to start and start on time, which is which is obviously the most exciting part for all of us. Yeah, that, that would have been disastrous for the league and the players, wouldn't it? No doubt. And, and I think the, I think this time around, I, you know, players they always have that sort of uh, option, right, to not play. No one wants to do that. No one wants to get to that point. I think this particular group was willing to um, say, okay, uh, you know, this time maybe we got we to gotta take a harder stance. But luckily um, that they, they got this thing. They started talking about this thing, um, you know, two years ago. And um, they, they were able to get a deal done. And we kind of got an idea a week or so before when they said they, they had extended the deal the current deal, and that kind of led everyone to believe that they just needed to uh, dot some I's and cross some T's, and uh, congratulations to both sides for getting it done and, and allowing us now to, to concentrate on, uh, you know, watching games and analyzing games and rooting for your teams. Yeah, and I, I often think of guys like you when uh, when charter flights are discussed and, you know, some of the uh, <laughs> some of the travel that you went through uh, in, in the late 90s, I mean... You have any stories there? I mean, you were on a bus a lot more than uh, these guys, right? Yeah, well, we spoke to Bob Foose. We had him on our show, the executive director of uh, the MLS Players Association, and he's the guy who did this deal. And we joked about charter flights, and he said, you know, back in your day, this wasn't even a conversation. So when you talk about how far the league's come, uh, that's one of the areas you can certainly look in. That's one of the areas where you can uh, you can say, yeah, thing, things are changing for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's part of uh, it's part of now, sort of the recovery for players. Keeping it, the, the fresher the players are, um, the, the healthier they they can be throughout the year. The more entertaining the league is, and I think everybody just realized that. Uh, Tony Miola, our guest, uh, Tony and I, we have a common trait. We're both Jersey boys. So Tony, I grew up in Basking Ridge, a, a not very diverse community. There was no soccer in my neighborhood, and I compare that to where you grew up, Kearney. Soccer Town USA, which is actually a documentary. Tom McCabe, a friend of ours, guy you grew up with, and uh, he, he did this documentary. He's a soccer historian. But it, it, Carney is really, it's just a, when you look back historically, you, uh, John Harks, Tab Ramos, many others, but to all come from that area, can you give us just a taste of what it was like as a kid playing soccer in Carney? Well, I, I tell everyone right off the, the, the jump when they ask me about playing soccer at Kearney, you, you know, in, in most cities, if you think back in that time, in, in most cities, um, it, soccer was not the cool thing to do. Uh, you were playing basketball, baseball, football, you know, some, some of the big three sports, if you will, at that time. And um, in our town, you kind of you, you weren't sort of in the quote unquote in crowd um, if you didn't play if you didn't play soccer, if you didn't go out to the courts. Um, if you didn't go out and, and battle with guys that were 30 years older than you um, down at the courts just to stay on in order to play some more games. And uh, it's kind of uh, that, that's kind of where um, it's kind of where you learn the game. It's kind of where you learn the mentality of the game. And um, and that's what everyone wanted to do. I mean, if you think about it, very Scottish and Irish uh, immigrants from Scotland and Ireland in our town. Myself and my best friend Sal Rosemilia were really the only two Italians 
um, in the entire town. So how we got dropped in there, I don't know. Uh, but we all came from our parents growing up um, in overseas, whether in Europe or South America, if you will. There, even the, the local towns next to us, Harrison. Um, and that's that's all everyone wanted to do, Glenn. You went out after school and you were finding, you were getting down the courts and finding a group of players to be the next six guys on the court and hopefully win and stay on as long as you can. And when you went down to the courts, you know, I can remember being 10, 12 years old and going to fight with guys that had been, that were 30, 40, 50 years old that were still at the courts kicking the ball around and you didn't care. You didn't care how old everybody was. And that's kind of the, the mentality you see around the world. I think, Glenn, and I, I think you probably will agree, I listen to your show all the time. We don't do enough of that. We don't we don't have that anymore. We don't have going out in the streets and just kind of figuring it out. You know, we our I players know, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, our players today have to have a cone on the field and they gotta be told you go here and you go there and this is where you pass the ball. There's there's no free play anymore. And I, I, I suppose I love training. I know I know academies want to train three and four times a week. And I love that part of it because they get they get proper training and they get good facilities and a nice soccer ball to play with. And um, but when you train three or four times a week, sometimes five times a week, uh, there's no way you're going to find kids going on the street and playing. There's just no time. And uh, I, I don't know how we ever if we ever get back to that. But that's kind of the, the 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 era that we grew up in in Carney. Yeah, and it it just it sounds uh, you know romanticized that uh, you know playing on the courts and then the pickup and that that kind of, and it, it is. I, uh, now I've talked to one of your other good friends, Tab Ramos, you know about trying to replicate that. He was technical director uh, for the for the youth side for U.S. Soccer for years. And it's really that's a that's a pretty large challenge because society has changed too. Yeah, we, we need to we need to drive our kids to a place. We need to play on the best teams. We need the best coaches. We need everything. And I think I, I think that you know that part of it is is really never going to come back. Um, and you know, for years, I mean, you've heard it. How many years have we said, oh, in the U.S., we don't we don't have creative number 10s we don't have that guy right that could break the game down maybe because that's part of it i don't know i don't know how we get back to it i don't know if we ever do um but it's it's certainly it's part of my history and you mentioned tab and john it's part of their history um you know and i saw yesterday it's funny enough you you mentioned this topic our good friend aleko eskandarian who's now working at the league he tweeted out <clears throat> About the Eagle Soccer Complex, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Um, the, yeah, and he said in the end of his tweet, he said, feel like I earned a degree in street soccer with my time spent there. And he said, remember this place, Tony Miola? And I, I tweeted back something to the effect that, you know, how can I forget this place? Um, you earned your stripes there. You know, it's one of those places you went because you knew there was going to be good players. You knew you were going to have to compete. Um it wasn't a league. It was kind of a pickup, and that's where everybody went. And now, now things have changed. Um, so when when people say, I, I, I truly believe the changes are for the better, um, for the most part. But I, I truly believe we missed that part of it. Yeah, and I know uh, 
you uh, you listen sometimes to Kyle Martino and, and a guy who was a candidate for U.S. soccer president. And I, and I you mentioned the courts. And the one thing that really stands out to me about what he was pushing is turning all the if you look at New York City, for instance, turning basketball courts into uh, alternative soccer courts as well by just putting a goal underneath the uh, underneath the basket, something like that. So uh, maybe there well, are think uh, about Glenn, if you think about sorry, what the courts were in Kearney. The courts were a hockey rink that they built, a street hockey rink. Now, I'll tell you what, I never saw one kid ever play street hockey in Carney, <laughs> nor did I ever see one play street hockey on the, on the hockey courts. So we took a hockey court and we turned it into, um, you know, we, we had to go behind the goal. You had to be creative. We, we took it and said, okay, this is now a soccer field. And that's what it became. All right, Tony. I, look, we're going to get to the New York City game, but I, I do. I want to bring up a couple of other things because you mentioned Sal Rosamelia, your your great friend. Now you were both goalkeepers at the same time at Carney High School. So what is the story of him being in goal one year and you, if I have this right, you scoring forty two goals as a striker? Yeah. Um, so um, you know, every goalkeeper wants to play in the field. That's right. right that's uh, right. So Sal and I for. For three years, um, we had we had rotated in goal, first half, second half. We did that all the way to the state finals a couple times. And um, our senior year, a week before opening day, um, our, our star center forward, who would have scored 40 goals that year, gets into a car accident. And uh, unfortunately, he's out uh, pretty much until the end of the season. Ended up not playing um, because of, you know, it's, it's back in a time where you know, if you're not played, you got to work in the family business, you know, that type of thing. And yeah. that's kind of what he got caught up with when he was injured and um, had to do what he had to do. And uh, our head coach, Mr. Miller, was like, oh, we need a center forward. And I was like, yeah, sure, I can do this. <laughs> you know, <when laughs> first got to raise your hand or maybe I was the tallest guy. And he saw my hand and, and I ended up playing as a center forward. I played a little bit the year before because we had a couple games where we were blowing teams out and he'd put, he'd put myself or Sal up and, at center forward to try and score a goal in high school. And it was one of those kind of funny things you talk about in the locker room all the time. And I suppose it ended up working out all right. And quite honestly, um, it helped me down the road. I didn't realize it when it was going on, but I started to become pretty good with my feet. Um, and then as I was growing up, you know, in, in goal and, and, and starting my professional career, I was probably um, way ahead of, the curve by the time um, FIFA made the decision, I think in 92 or 93, uh, because we used it in the 94 world cup where they changed all the rules for goalkeepers, picking the balls up with your hand. Right. Um, so um, I, 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 I got a little lesson before that. And I, I always felt comfortable in that part of the game. And I think it all goes back uh, to those high school days. Now I'm curious, are you one of those goalkeepers? I've known a number of them where uh, it, there's not production in front of them, uh, there's a lack of goal scoring, and you just feel like, hey, put me up there, man, and I'll score the goal, especially after you know, you've proven that you can score. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was always that. The, the, the argument always, you know, is always, well, you sit back there, you're not doing a lot of work, you're not running around like us, you don't know what it's like. Uh, you know, so, but yeah, look, I, you know, as a matter of fact, if you recall, I played three times as a center forward in Major League Soccer. I don't know if people know that. Um, there were crazy rules back in the day which allowed you, and, and the big one was Mike McGee when Bob Bradley had the whole goalkeeper change. There was a rule with the third sub. It was three subs and a goalkeeper. 
I forget how the rule was interpreted, but there was a sort of a wrinkle in the rule. And three times I played my first one against Columbus for the Metro Stars. I went up as a center forward. We were losing. We ended up losing two nothing. Um, and I believe that I recorded the only shot on goal um, <laughs> in, in that one. Uh, so not a great day for us, if that's the case. And then uh, I did it once, once, uh, once more for the Metro Stars, and I did it once in the um, in a playoff against Chicago for uh, Sporting Kansas City. Um, uh, Bob Gansler uh, used me as a center forward, um, so I went up against Carlos Bocanegra. Things didn't go nearly as I dreamed that they would go the night before. Uh, but uh, I still did it. That is wild. All right, uh, Tony Miola, our guest, uh, he was uh, uh, the commentator for New York City FC's 5-3 win over San Carlos in their first-ever international competition for City. And, you know, uh, Tony, when Ronnie Dyla, the head coach for New York City, uh, was hired, one of his first comments was he said, I'd rather win 5-4 than 1-0 as long as we win. And so it seems like he got what he was asking for in that first game. Yeah, he certainly did. Um, yeah, and I guess the big question mark, and I'd said, so I, I'll start by saying when this draw came out, I'd said from day number one, I thought NYCFC got the most favorable draw for a first-round game out of all the MLS teams. Um, I had covered San Carlos through CONCACAF League. Uh, they came in. I think it's the third or fourth place uh, winner in that uh, in CONCACAF League, a team that was light defensively, uh, a team that at times looked disorganized under Luis Marine. And he, and back then, back in November, when CONCACAF League was, was finishing up, um, he was under pressure then, under pressure all the way to the weekend, this past weekend, where San Carlos was losing 3-0 in their league match and ended up in the last 10 minutes scoring three goals and tying Three, three, um, and I think what you saw there, the team still had a little bit of fight in them. And what you saw this past week against NYCFC is they had some fight where they didn't give up until the end. It was at one point, um, it was at one point four three when Omar Brownie scored that long distance shot somewhere around the 80th minute, and then uh, of course the penalty kick uh, finished it. But five away goals. I think if you're uh, Ronnie Dylan, I saw his post match interview. He was proud of the guys still have some things to work on. Um, the, the thing with new managers, Glenn, is, is I'm sure you, you've spoken about is you just don't know if they're going to change things. Right. And this, remember, this is a Ronnie Dyla who took over a team that's finished first in the Eastern conference. So it's not as if you go, oh, I take the, I take the last place team and well, they were in last place. we got to change something, right? This right. is a team you kind of almost like when Tata Martino left, and Frank DeBoer came in and he made some changes right off the bat. And it what they didn't start winning until he basically went back to uh, what that team was built around. Uh, now Atlanta will look a little different this year, obviously, but that same picture, you know, you come in, you take a team that's riding high. Tata Martino had won a, an MLS cup and that's a hard, that's sometimes a hard team to take over because now you got to figure out, see, oftentimes it's, it's easy to figure out what's going wrong. Right. Sometimes it's it's hard to enhance what's going right. Uh, but Ronnie Dyla, he didn't seem to make a lot of changes. Um, a little higher press maybe in that first half than than I would have imagined. And the one thing I thought they had problems with, and I, I think I pointed it out a couple times on a telecast, were just direct long balls over the top. Um, and I, I, guess, I suppose that's a product of pushing guys forward and being committed to having numbers 
you know, get forward, especially your wide guys and Tim right. Holm and Matarita. And you got to give something up if you're going to do that. And that's probably the area you got to give up. So they just have to be sharper, maybe, maybe pressing, uh, pressing before someone puts their head down to be able to put a long ball in, maybe just taking an angle where you make it predictable. So you know where the long ball is going. Other than that, I thought, I thought it was, they were cruising for, for the most part, especially in that first half. Unlucky to, to give up a goal. Again, a ball over the top to uh, Aguilar, and he has a great finish. Uh, nothing Sean Johnson can do, but any attack, man, they look dangerous. Well, and, and the uh, you talk about uh, uh, the fullback. So Matarita assisted on the first Eber goal. Tinnerholm assists on the uh, second Eber goal. So you've got your fullbacks Correct. deep into the attack. So what it appeared to me is that the central defenders were a bit more exposed Maybe that's the the little tweak that we've seen from Dyla with uh, Alexander Collins and Maxime Cheneau, which ultimately was uh, was where they were and how they were isolated on that goal uh, right before uh, halftime. Yeah, and, and anytime you got to pull them out of central areas, you know, center backs aren't aren't all that comfortable more often than not. I mean, the greatest ones in the world, the Ramoses of the world, they'll go anywhere on the field and and win a tackle, right? But most guys uh, just don't feel comfortable getting pulled out one v one against, um, uh, you know, against wingers, against forwards. You know, they want to be in those central areas. So, I, I imagine uh, that Ronnie Dyla, that that's one of the things that he's going to address. Uh, but I don't know that I saw, and 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 I say this in like a refreshing way. I don't know that I saw anything too different from NYCFC. Um, which is, which is, uh, if I'm an NYCFC fan, I'm pretty happy with that part of it. I'm pretty happy that the styles look, looks the same. Um, one, one thing I would be really excited. Look, we know Matriza, we know what he did last year ever. We know what he did last year. I thought Jesus Medina was outstanding throughout the entire game. And you know, better than I, you cover him week in and week out. I did his, his first game. When he was in Sporting Kansas City, I did that game. That's his a couple best, years. His best game as a, as a member of the team, probably. Oh, okay, so there you go. I I, I had high hopes after that game. That's I, right. I probably said it a couple times. I said, uh, you know, man, it, yeah, they got a player here, and then it really hasn't gone sort of the script. And if if the other night is any indication, he seems to uh, be really really tuned in and I, I would be really excited about that if I'm a NYCFC fan well he's been uh, you know a bit of the ire of the fans because he's a young DP who hasn't produced to that level so that would be uh, outstanding news for the supporters uh, and, and for the side uh, Tony Miola our guest and yeah uh, it, it was a potent attack the other night and uh, I, I I look at the midfield and uh, it was absent of Maxi Morales who came in as a reserve and then Ismail Tajiri Shradi, who we know is mm-hmm. uh, has been outstanding up top uh, in his couple of years with New York City, he's not quite uh, fully fit to play. He, he may have that chance on Wednesday. So there are some decisions to be made by Ronnie Dyla along the way, especially the return of Morales. So who sits when Morales comes into the lineup? Yeah, that's a, that's a question mark. Is it Does Keaton Parks go in? So Keaton Parks played, it looked like, more at 10. Uh, they played with two holding midfielders and James Sands and Alexander Ring. Does Keaton Parks drop in? James Sands maybe goes to the bench, um, and, and uh, Maxi Morales goes underneath Eber. Um, so there are some question marks. Don't forget Castellanos as well, right. uh, the 21-year-old Argentinian who came in and looked to give them a spark as well. So 
there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of options in this group um, again, which is a good thing. I, I think if if anything, um, you know, when when you, uh, again you you go on the attack with so many numbers and in such in such a way, you're going to give something up. If anything, they'll they'll have to tighten things up defensively. But this is game one. Um, I, I, I like what I saw from this side. I, I can't imagine that this isn't a team that based on the talent that they have, that that is not going to be competing for the Eastern Conference again. It's interesting because I've seen some pundits, you know, with their preseason predictions, say they'll finish as low as sixth in the East. I don't know if they're gauging that based on what other teams have done, but uh, there's there's no question that this is the team that brings back the most 23 players from last year's uh, first team, uh, New York City FC. But And, and you, you said a favorable draw, but the CCL is not set up for success for Major League Soccer teams, is it? No. Uh, the one thing, and you, you touched on it a little bit before, the one thing is the fitness level of the teams. Um, to, to a team, all five teams that competed in this thing from MLS and ran out of gas at some point in the game. Right. Ran out of gas, 60 to 70th minute of the game. Um, I go to Montreal. I did Seattle, uh, NYCFC. This happened to Atlanta. Um, it's, it's just, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that, um, you know, look at LAFC. Is that the LA LAFC team? Now they got the worst of the draws for me against Leon. Um, but is that the LAFC team that we're used to seeing now? I suppose you can credit some of that to a very good Leon team, but there were some uncharacteristic, um, poor giveaways by LAFC, um, that you're not going to see in the, in the middle of the year. So this is this, the the battle part of the uh, of the this competition, if you will, for for uh, MLS teams. But to a team, as I said, every team at some point ran out of gas, and there's just no way that when um, I believe in uh, in NYCFC's uh, case for AD St. Carlos, I think this was their seventh or eighth game of their league season. In Mexico, they're ten games in. Uh, you know, Costa Rica, some of the teams are nine games in, but they, they get breaks when they're in these competitions because the leagues uh, postpone games while they're playing in these competitions the week before so they can get prepared. So you can see where that part of the, the competitive disadvantage is um, for those groups. And that's um, just something they're going to have to deal with. Does it change a week from now? I'm, I'm not sure how much the fitness level changes a week from now for those sides but it's part of the battle and and that's what we've seen over the years and and a major part of the dilemma tony is that the uh, mls regular season is upon us and then it's the congestion of games at such an early part of the season where you're not fully fit so if you don't have massive depth but i always look back to toronto you know they get to the final and then they have this uh, very difficult regular season you know coming off an mls cup championship so it's it's uh, we really haven't seen anybody manage it well yet, have we? Well, we tried this year um, with all teams, all the CONCACAF Champions League teams starting a week or ten days early. We saw last year, Sporting Kansas City, um, I think, start two weeks early. They they got permission to start earlier earlier because of their games. Um, yeah, but it, it it's yeah, but look at their but look at their regular season. Right, and then look at Toronto the year before that, right? When they get to the finals, they come back, and their their season now has been extended that much longer, and the MLS teams aren't as deep roster-wise. Um, you know, if you get, uh, if you get uh, um, past this first round, 
you know, you get those games in MLS under your belt, your fitness level is at 90 minutes and it, in a lot of ways becomes, it, it becomes easier. Uh, but yeah, so getting past this, this first part of it, um, and MLS teams did okay outside of, uh, outside of uh, LAFC, but they do get the opportunity to come home. You know, Bob Bradley, um, we'll we'll have this team turned around. But if you think about it, you know Seattle gets two goals on the road. NYCFC two. Uh, I'm sorry, five away goals. Montreal two away goals. Um, and and Atlanta got their one away goal and come back with a draw against Motagua, which is a side that they they should put away in Atlanta. You know, LAFC um, has got the most work to do, no doubt about it. Um, so I, I like the way overall the MLS teams line up for uh, leg two here this week. All right, uh, Tony, one final thought. Uh, we talked about Tab Ramos earlier. I know you're close to him. You've, uh, you've worked with him uh, with the U-20s when he was a U-20 coach. And now he's in his first season in MLS. Uh, the, the, the very first draft pick ever in MLS in 96 for the Metro Stars. And now his first... Uh, head coaching assignment in MLS with uh, with Houston. I, I would imagine he's uh, pretty pumped about this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, he inherited a team that I always thought was, and, and quite honestly, we used to talk about it. Um, he, uh, he he inherited a team that because they were a counterattacking team, I thought that they would be great on the road. Um, as it turned out, they were a terrible team on the road over the last two years under Wilma Cabrera. Couldn't figure out how to get points on the road, um, but they had some talent. And now he brings Darwin Quintero in, um, who is a, a very, uh, what's the term, I, a very tab-like player, if you will, because I don't know a better term to use, um, where his skill can break teams down. Um, you know, and, and Tab can kind of speak his language, and I don't mean I don't mean Spanish. I mean the way he likes to play. Uh, you know, take people on and be adventurous and and be that guy for him. Um, they're gonna have to shore things up defensively, and I know they've worked on that. They they needed to find a goalkeeper. They went and did that. Um, your first year in MLS, you're gonna uh, you're excited. There's no doubt. I would think that the team is going to be a little bit more of a pressing team than they've been in the past um, because that's just tab nature is not to sit back and allow the other team um, to, to just, uh, you know, dictate the pace of the game. So that part of it, I think will change. And then uh, we'll see uh, what, what job he does managing. And I'm, so, I'm, I'm sure he'll do a good job. I'm sure they'll enjoy playing for him. Um, I'm sure that uh, the players will, will, will respond to him. And uh, it'd be exciting to see that that, that group develop. And, and uh, Tab was a great servant to U.S. soccer. Uh, the the amount of success with the U20s. We talked earlier about the uh, technical director position as well. And uh, you know, along the way, you just wondered if if he would be the guy. And uh, this is uh, not about Greg Barhalter, not about uh, U.S. soccer's ultimate choice for the uh, U.S. men's national team coach. But uh, in your mind, uh, I know he's your friend, but observing him, was Tab ready to take that job if it was offered? Um, yeah, I believe so. And, and I, you know, I was surprised at the time that it didn't happen, if I'm being you know, completely honest with you. And I, I've said that before. Uh, but I think he understood the position when there's change um, at the top. You never know what's going to happen. We're going to have change once again at the top. Uh, at U.S. Soccer, and uh, I'm sure there'll be some changes just just based on that uh, alone. And, and, and you're talking about changing some pretty big positions that have been occupied for quite some time. 
Um, you know, you can't rewind um, what happened. Hopefully, we just continue to move forward and, and things just continue to get better. I'm I'm really excited about this this particular national team group. I've said forever. Um, I told Brian McBride this week on our show that I thought that this team was more built for 2026 to 2022. Although, um, although I will say that I, you know I think they'll qualify for 2022 and all that stuff. Um, I just think that this particular group is going to find its way, its its true path in 2026. All right, he's Tony Miola, uh, National Soccer Hall of Famer. Uh, uh, you will uh, hear him and, and, and see him on a, a number of broadcasts, in particular with CONCACAF. So this CONCACAF Champions League, you're going to see a lot of them. Good luck with the broadcast, Tony, and thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Glenn. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your time. We'll catch up with you soon. Miola has provided the analysis for every MLS team in this CCL, and you can tell that he's feeling pretty good about at least four of them getting to the next round, including New York City FC, whose home leg is at rival Red Bull Arena, which has caused quite a fuss among the supporters. The third rail, for instance, calling for a boycott of the match. Well, go to my Twitter account, at Glenn Crooks, and there's been quite a discussion over the last few days after uh, I made public my thoughts on the boycott. I don't agree with it. And I've heard all the reasoning, uh, many I have great respect for, that are adamant about a boycott, while there are others who are vehemently opposed. I'll simply say this. The relationship between the supporters and the players and head coach should be sacrosanct, here in one of the biggest matches in club history. And I know there is a special bond between City supporters and the first team, but by failing to show for the game, you might take away that bit of energy that could help the team through a tough spot or play a role at a quick goal at the start of the match and end this thing early. Now, when I form an opinion on these kind of things, I always look at the sporting side. The pitch at RBA is brilliant, and the atmosphere with an enthusiastic supporters group resonates in that place. The players and Ronnie Dyla had no say about the venue, and if you choose the dugout, over Harrison, New Jersey, your absence will be felt. Go to at Glenn Crooks and add your thoughts before kickoff. With respect to both sides of the argument, this is Glenn Crooks on Frame.